Murphy. The Magdalene Mental Mersey seat lay a little way out of town, ideally situated in its own grounds on the boundary of two counties. In order to die in the one sheriff alty rather than the other, some patients had merely to move up, or be moved up a little in the bed. This sometimes proved a great convenience. It was here, the Magdalen Mental Mercy Seat, that Murphy had come at the behest of the poet Austin Ticklepenny to relieve him of his duties as a nurse. It's driving me mad, Ticklepenny had said. Myself now degraded to the position of a male nurse in a hospital for the better class mentally deranged. It is hard to say where the fault lies in the case of Ticklepenny, whether with the soul, the stream, or the lips, but certainly the quality of his speech is most wretched. Ticklepenny had been in the employ of the Mersey seat just one week, and now, after a bare week in the wards, he felt as if he could not go on. It all struck Murphy as a rather pretentious fear of going mad. The head male nurse, Mr. Thomas Bim Clinch, a huge, red, bald, whiskered man of overweening ability and authority in his own department, had a fancy for Ticklepenny, not far short of love. It was largely thanks to this that Ticklepenny had been taken on in the first place. It was largely thanks to it now that Murphy was taken on in Ticklepenny's stead. He would take Murphy on a month's probation and released Ticklepenny from his contract, when Murphy had completed his month, and not before, Ticklepenny would be paid for the ten days he had served. Thus, Ticklepenny was made security for Murphy. Thus Murphy's appointment, as though to a position of the highest trust, was a foregone conclusion. His own merits were so recondite, that he obviously could not be appointed on them, but only on the demerits, or by-merits, of Ticklepenny. So it was that a few minutes after his arrival, he found himself being signed on and admonished by Bim, who did not like the look of him in the least. He would be expected to make beds, carry trays, clean up regular messes, clean up casual messes, read thermometers, write charts, wash the bedridden, give medicine, hound down its effects, warm bedpans, cool fevers, boil gags, sterilize when in doubt, honor and obey the male sister, wait hand, foot, and mouth on the doctor when he came, look pleasant. He would never lose sight of the fact that he was dealing with patients not responsible for what they did or said. He would never on any account allow himself to be affected by the abuse, no matter how foul and unmerited, that would be poured out upon him. The patients, seeing so much of the nurses and so little of the doctor, it was natural, Bim asserted, that they should regard the former as their persecutors and the latter as their savior. He would never on any account be rough with a patient. Restraint and coercion were sometimes unavoidable, but must always be exerted with the utmost tenderness. After all, it was a mercy seat. If single-handed, he could not handle a patient without hurting him, let him call the other nurses to his assistance. 
He would never lose sight of the fact that he was a creature without initiative. He had no competence to register facts on his own account. There were no facts in the MMM, except those sanctioned by the doctor. Thus, to take a simple example, when a patient died suddenly, and flagrantly as was sometimes bound to happen in the MMM, let him assume nothing of the kind when sending for the doctor. No patient was dead till the doctor had seen him. He would never on any account neglect to keep his mouth shut. The mercies of the Mersey seat were private and confidential. These were the main points to be kept constantly in mind. Other routine details would be explained to him as he went along. He was assigned to Skinner's house, male side, first floor. His hours would be 8 to 12 and 2 to 8. He would start the following morning. He would be on day duty for the first week, on night duty the second week. The peculiar features of night duty would be explained to him when the time came. A less remarkable outfit would be issued to him. Had he any questions before he was passed to Ticklepenny for a tour? There was a silence. Bim liking the look of Murphy less and less, Murphy racking his brains for a plausible curiosity. Are they all certified? said Murphy. That is not your business, said Bim. You are not paid to take an interest in the patients, but to fetch for them, carry for them, and clean up after them. All you know about them is the work they give you to do. Make no mistake about it. Murphy learned later that about 15% of the patients were certified. The little band select only in name, treated with exactly the same sanguine punctilio as the 85% that were not certified. For the MMM was a sanatorium, not a madhouse, nor a home for defectives, and as such admitted only those cases whose prognoses were not considered hopeless. If the effect of treatment was to render the prognosis hopeless, as was sometimes bound to happen even in the MMM, then out went the patient, except in very special extenuating circumstances. Thus, if the chronic, the soft impairment having been admitted, was a really charming chap, quiet, clean, biddable, and solvent, he might be allowed to settle down in the MMM for the rest of his natural. There were a few such fortunate cases, certified and uncertified, enjoying all the amenities of a mental hospital, from peraldehyde to slosh, without any of its therapeutic vexations. Cringing with relief, Ticklepenny took Murphy first to his sleeping quarters, then to Skinner House. Two large buildings, one for males, the other for females, remote from the main block, and still more so from each other, housed the nursing staff and other menials. Married nurses, both male and female, lived out. Murphy had the choice of sharing a room with Ticklepenny or having a garret to himself. They climbed the ladder to the garret, and Murphy chose it with such decision that even Ticklepenny felt a little slighted. It was not usual for Ticklepenny to feel slighted at all. It was unprecedented for him to do so without cause, 
as was the present case. The reason for this eccentricity does not seem a very good one. Fewer years ago than he cared to remember, while still in the first cyanosis of his youth, Murphy had occupied a garret in Hanover, not for long, but for long enough to experience all its advantages. Since then, he had sought high and low for another, even half as good, in vain. What passed for a garret in this country was really nothing more than an attic. An attic? How was it possible for such a confusion to arise? A basement was better than an attic. An attic? But the garret that he now saw was not an attic, nor yet a mansard, but a genuine garret, not half, but twice as good as the one in Hanover, because half as large. The ceiling and the other wall were one, superb surge of white, pitched at the perfect angle of furthest trajectory, pierced by a small frosted skylight ideal for closing against the sun by day and opening by night to the stars. The bed, so low and gone in the springs that even unfreighted the middle grazed the ground, was wedged lengthways into the cleft of the floor and ceiling, so that Murphy was saved the trouble of moving it into that position. The garret contained, in addition to the bed, one chair and one chest, not of drawers, an immense candle, stuck to the floor by its own tallow, pointed its snuff to heaven at the head of the bed. This, the only means of light, was more than enough for Murphy, a strict non-reader. But he objected very strongly to there being no means of heat. I must have fire, he said to Ticklepenny. I cannot live without fire. Ticklepenny was sorry. He thought it most unlikely that Murphy would be granted a fire in the garret. There were no tubes or wires to that remote area. A brazier seemed the only chance, but Bim would hardly allow a brazier. Murphy would find that a fire was really unnecessary in so confined a space. The flame would work up a fine fog in no time. I come here to oblige you, said Murphy, and I'm still prepared to do so, but... Not without fire, Murphy went on to speak of tubes and wires. Was it not just the beauty of tubes and wires that they could be extended? Was it not their chief characteristic, the ease with which they could be extended? What was the point of going in for tubes and wires at all, if you did not extend them without compunction whenever necessary? Did they not cry out for extension? Ticklepenny thought he would never stop saying feverishly the same thing in slightly different ways. "'You should see my fire,' said Ticklepenny. This infuriated Murphy. Was he to find a garret after all these years, just as all hopes seemed dead, a garret that was actually not an attic nor a mansard, only to lose it again at once for want of a few yards of tube or wire?' He broke into sweat, lost all his yellow. His heart pounded. The garret spun round. He could not speak. When he could, he said, in a voice new to Ticklepenny, Have fire in this garret tonight, or... He stopped, because he could not go on. 
Ticklepenny supplied the missing consequences in various versions, each one more painful than any Murphy could have specified. Terrifying, taken altogether. It seems strange that neither of them thought of an oil stove, say a small valor perfection. Bim could hardly have objected, and all the trouble with tubes and wires would have been avoided. Fact remains that the idea of an oil stove did not occur to either of them at the time, though it did long afterwards to Ticklepenny. Now for the wards, said Ticklepenny. Did you catch what I said? said Murphy. By any chance? I'll do what I can, said Ticklepenny. It makes no difference to me, said Murphy, whether I go or stay. He was mistaken. On the way to Skinner's house, they passed a bijou edifice of mellow brick with a forecourt of lawn and flowers, its facade a profusion of traveler's joy and self-clinging ampelopsis set in a bay of clipped yews. Is that the nursery? said Murphy. No, said Ticklepenny. The mortuary. Skinner House was a long, gray, two-story building, dilated at both ends like a double obelisk. The females were thrown altogether to the west, the males to the east. Skinner was the cockpit of the MMM, and here the battle raged most fiercely whenever it could be engaged, between the psychotic and psychiatric points of view. Patients left Skinner House better, dead, or chronic, for a convalescent house, the mortuary, or the exit, as the case may be. They mounted directly to the first floor, and Murphy was submitted to the male sister, Mr. Timothy Baum Clinch, younger twin and dead spit of Bim. Baum, primed by Bim, expected nothing from Murphy, and Murphy, ex hypothesi, nothing from Baum, with the result that neither was disappointed. This way, said Baum. The wards consisted of two long corridors, intersecting to form a T, or more correctly, a decapitated potence. The three extremities developed into spacious crutch heads, which were the reading, writing, and recreation rooms, or recs, known to the wittier ministers of mercy as the sublimatoria. Here the patients were encouraged to play billiards, darts, ping-pong, the piano, and other less strenuous games, or simply to hang about doing nothing. The great majority preferred simply to hang about doing nothing. To adopt for a moment, as a purely descriptive convenience, the terms and orientation of church architecture, the layout of the wards was that of nave and transepts, with nothing east of the crossing. There were no open wards in the ordinary sense, but single rooms, or as some would say cells, or as Boswell said, mansions, opening south off the nave and east and west off the transepts. North of the nave were the kitchens, patients' refectory, nurses' refectory, drug arsenal, patients' lavatory, nurses' lavatory, visitors' lavatory, etc. The bedridden and more refractory cases were kept together, as far as possible, in the south transept, off which opened the padded cells, known to the wittier as the quiet rooms, rubber rooms, or, in a notable clip, pads. The whole place was overheated 
and stank of peraldehyde and truant sphincters. There were not many patients about as Murphy followed Baum through the wards. Some were at Matins, some in the gardens, some could not get up, some would not, some simply had not. But those that he did see were not at all the terrifying monsters he might have imagined from Ticklepenny's account. Melancholics, motionless and brooding, holding their heads or bellies according to type, paranoids, feverishly covering sheets of paper with complaints against their treatment, more verbatim reports of their inner voices. A hebephrenic, playing the piano intently. A hypomaniac, teaching slosh to Coruscal syndrome. An emaciated schizoid, petrified in a toppling attitude as though condemned to an eternal tableau vivant, his left hand rhetorically extending, holding a cigarette half-smoked and out, his right, quivering and rigid, pointing upward. They caused Murphy no horror. The most easily identifiable of his immediate feelings were respect and unworthiness. Except for the manic, who was like an epitome of the self-made plutilators who ever triumphed over empty pockets and clean hands, the impression he received was that of the self-immersed indifference to the contingencies of the contingent world which he had chosen for himself as the only felicity and achieved so seldom. The tour being over and all Bim's precepts exemplified, Baum led the way back to the crossing and said, That's all now. Report in the morning at eight. He waited to be thanked before he opened the door. Ticklepenny nudged Murphy. A million thanks, said Murphy. Don't thank me, said Baum. Any questions? Murphy knew better, but made a show of consulting with himself. He would like to start in straight away, said Ticklepenny. My instructions are he doesn't come on till morning, said Baum. Ticklepenny nudged Murphy, this time unnecessarily, for Murphy was only too anxious to test his striking impression that here were the people he had long since despaired of finding. Also, he wanted Ticklepenny to be free to rig up a fire in his garret. He would have played up unprompted. Of course... I know my month only counts from tomorrow, Murphy said, but I should like very much to start in at once, if I might. Baum gave up. Murphy reported to Baum at two o'clock, and entered upon that experience from which he already hoped for better things, without exactly knowing why, or what things, or in what way better. Murphy was sorry when eight o'clock came, and he was sent off duty, having been loudly abused by Baum for his clumsiness in handling things, trays, beds, thermometers, syringes, pans, jacks, spatulas, screws, etc., and silently commended for his skill in handling the patients themselves, whose names and more flagrant peculiarities he had fully coordinated by the end of the six hours, what he might expect from them and what he might never hope. Ticklepenny was seeing to the fire in Murphy's garret, struggling with a tiny old-fashioned gas radiator, firing a spark pistol with a kind of despair in the light of a candle. He related how the ill-advised installation he had developed step by step, typically from the furthest fetched of his visions to a reality that would not function. Ticklepenny had brought the radiator to the garret, 
set it down on the floor, and stood back to imagine it lit. Rusty, dusty, derelict, the coils of asbestos falling to pieces, it seemed to defy ignition. He went dismally away to look for gas. He solved the contraption in less than two hours by means of a series of discarded feed tubes eked out with seizure of glass, thanks to which gas was now being poured into the radiator. A precarious assembly now taking gas in from a WC some ways away. Yet the asbestos would not kindle, pepper it with sparks as he might. You speak of gas, said Murphy, but I smell no gas. This was where he was at a disadvantage, for Ticklepenny did smell gas, faintly, but distinctly. He described how he turned it on in the W.C. and raced it back to the garret. He explained how the flow could only be regulated from the W.C., as there was no tap and no provision for a tap at the radiator's seat of entry. That was perhaps the chief inconvenience of his machine— a more dignified way for Murphy to light his fire, in default of an assistant to turn on the gas below while he waited above, ready with a spark pistol, would be to fix an asbestos nozzle on his end of the connection, descend with this to the source of the supply, light up in the WC, and carry the fire back to the radiator at his leisure. Or, if he preferred, he could bring the whole radiator down to the WC into hell with a special nozzle. Those were... Minor points. The main point was that he, Ticklepenny, had turned on the gas more than ten minutes before and had been firing sparks into the radiator ever since, without result. This was true. Either the gas is not on, said Murphy, or the connection is broken. Am I after trying? said Ticklepenny. A lie. Ticklepenny was worn out. Try again, said Murphy. Show me the sparks. Ticklepenny crawled down the ladder. Murphy crouched before the radiator. In a moment came a faint hiss, then a faint smell. Murphy averted his head and pulled the trigger. The radiator lit with a sigh and blushed, with as much of its asbestos as had not perished. How's that? called Ticklepenny from the foot of his ladder. Murphy went down to prevent Ticklepenny, whose immediate usefulness seemed over, from coming up and to be shown the tap. Is she going? said Ticklepenny. Yes, said Murphy. Well, that beats all, said Ticklepenny. I swear I turned the little bee on. Perhaps a little bird flew in, said Murphy, and lit on it. How could he with the window shut? said Ticklepenny. Perhaps he shut it behind him, said Murphy. They returned to the foot of the ladder. Murphy quickly began to ascend, pausing briefly at the top. A million thanks, said Murphy. Murphy tried to pull the ladder up after him. It was fastened down. Come on down to the club for a bit, why don't you? said Ticklepenny. Murphy closed the trap, sealing himself in the garret. Well, that beats the band said Ticklepenny, shambling away. Murphy moved the radiator as close to the bed as it would reach, sagged willingly in the middle, according to the mattress, and tried to come out in his mind. His body being too active with fatigue to permit of this, he submitted to sleep. 
Sleep, son of Erebus, and night. Sleep, half-brother to the Furies. When he awoke, the fog was thick. He got up and opened the skylight to see what stars he commanded, but closed it again at once, there being no stars. He lit the tall, thick candle from the radiator and went down to the WC to shut off the flow. What was the etymology of gas? On the way back, he examined the foot of the ladder. It was only lightly screwed down. Ticklepenny could rectify it. He undressed the regulation shirt, stuck the candle by its own tallow to the floor at the head of the bed, got in, and tried to come out in his mind. But his body was still too busy with its fatigue. And the etymology of gas? Could it be the same word as chaos? Hardly. Chaos was yawn, but then Cretan was Christian. Chaos would do. It might not be right, but it was pleasant for him. Henceforward, gas would be chaos and chaos gas. It could make you yawn, warm, laugh, cry, cease to suffer, live a little longer, die a little sooner. What could it not do? Gas. Could it turn a neurotic into a psychotic? No. Let there be heaven in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. The Chaos and Waters Facilities Act, the Chaos Light and Coke Company, Hell, Heaven, Helen, Celia. In the morning, nothing remained of the dream but a postmonition of calamity. Nothing of the candle but a little coil of tallow. Murphy found that every hour in the wards increased together with his esteem for the patients, his loathing of the textbook attitude toward them, the complacent scientific conceptualism that made contact with outer reality the index of mental well-being. Every hour did. Here at the mercy seat, the patients were described as cut off from reality, from the rudimentary blessings of the layman's reality, if not altogether, as in the severer cases, then in certain fundamental respects. The function of treatment was to bridge the gulf, translate the sufferer from his own pernicious little private dung heap to the glorious world of discrete particles, where it would be his inestimable prerogative once again to wonder, love, hate, desire, rejoice, and howl in a reasonable balanced manner, and comfort himself with the society of others in the same predicament. All this was duly revolting to Murphy, whose experience obliged him to call sanctuary what the psychiatrist called exile, and to think of the patients not as banished from a system of benefits, but as escaped from a colossal fiasco. The frequent expressions, apparently of pain, rage, despair, and, in fact, all the usual, to which some patients gave vent, suggesting a fly somewhere in the ointment of microcosmos, Murphy either disregarded or muted to mean what he wanted. Because these outbursts presented more or less the same features as those current in Mayfair and Clapham, it did not follow that they were identically provoked, any more than it was possible to argue the people in those areas out of the gloomy panoply of melancholia. Even if the patients did sometimes feel as lousy as they sometimes looked, still no aspersion was necessarily cast on the little world where Murphy presupposed them, one and all, to be having a glorious time. One had merely to ascribe their agitations not to any flaw in their self-seclusion, but to its investment by the healers, the melancholic's melancholy, 
Manic's fits of fury, the paranoid's despair. Left in peace, they would have been as happy as Larry, short for Lazarus, whose raising seemed to Murphy perhaps the one occasion on which the Messiah had overstepped the mark. With these and even less weighty constructions, he saved his facts against the pressure of those current in the mercy seat, stimulated by all those lives immured in mind, as he insisted on supposing, he labored more diligently than ever before. Three factors especially encouraged him in this, and in the belief that he had found his kindred at last. The first was the absolute impassiveness of the higher schizoids in the face of the most pitiless therapeutic bombardment. The second was the padded cells. The third was his success with the patients. The padded cells surpassed by far all he had ever been able to imagine in the way of indoor bowers of bliss. The three dimensions, slightly concave, were so exquisitely proportioned that the absence of the fourth was scarcely felt. The tender, luminous oyster gray of the pneumatic upholstery, cushioning every square inch of ceiling, walls, floor, and door, lent color to the truth that one was a prisoner of air. The temperature was such that only total nudity could do it justice. No system of ventilation appeared to dispel the illusion of respirable vacuum. The compartment was windowless, like a monad, except for the shuttered Judas in the door, at which a sane eye appeared, or was employed to appear, at frequent and regular intervals throughout the twenty-four hours. Within the narrow limits of domestic architecture, he had never been able to imagine a more creditable representation of what he kept on calling, indefatigably, the little world. His success with the patients was little short of scandalous. According to the textbook Psychotic, with his tendency to equate those objects, ideas, persons, etc., evincing the least element in common, the patients should have identified Murphy with Baum and company, simply because he resembled them in the superficial matters of function and clothing. The great majority failed to do so. The great majority discriminated so unmistakably in Murphy's favor that even Baum lost a little of his high color. Whatever they were in the habit of doing for Baum and company, they did more readily for Murphy. And in certain matters where Baum and company were obliged to coerce them or restrain them, they would suffer Murphy to merely persuade them. One patient, a litigious case of doubtful category, refused to exercise unless accompanied by Murphy. Another, a melancholic with highly developed delusions of guilt, would not get out of his bed unless on Murphy's invitation. Another melancholic, convinced that his intestines had turned to twine and blotting paper, would only eat when Murphy held the spoon. All this was highly irregular, little short of scandalous. Murphy was gratified to find how well it all consisted with what he already knew of his idiosyncrasy. His success with the patients was the signpost at last on the way he had followed so long and so blindly, with nothing to sustain him but the conviction that all other ways were wrong. His success with the patients was a signpost pointing to them. It meant that they felt in him what they had been, and he in them what he would be. It meant nothing less than a slap-up psychosis 
could consummate his life's strike. Quod erat extorcendum. Of all his friends among the patients there, it seemed to Murphy that none was quite like his tab, Mr. Endon. A tab was a patient on parchment, or on caution. A patient was put on parchment, or on caution, whenever there was occasion to suspect him of self-harm. The occasion might be threats uttered by the patient, or it might simply be the general tenor of his behavior. Then a tab was issued in his name, specifying in all cases where a preference had been expressed, and the form in which it was contemplated. Thus, Mr. Higgins, the belly cut, or any other available means. Mr. O'Connor, venom, or any other available means. Any other available means was a saving clause. The tab was then passed on to the male sister, who, having endorsed it, passed it on to one of his male nurses, who, having endorsed it, was from that time forward responsible for the natural death of the bastard in question. Of the special duties entailed by this responsibility, perhaps the chief was the control of the suspect at regular intervals of not more than twenty minutes, for it was the experience of the Mersey seat that only the most skillful and determined could do the trick in less time than that. Mr. Endon was on parchment, and Murphy had his tab. Mr. Endon, apnea, or any other available means. Mr. Endon was a schizophrenic of the most amiable variety, at least for the purposes of such a humble and envious outsider as Murphy. The languor in which he passed his days, while deepening every now and then to the extent of some charming suspension of gesture, was never so profound as to inhibit all movement. His inner voice did not harangue him. It was unobtrusive and melodious, a gentle continuo in the whole concert of his hallucinations. The bizarrery of his attitudes never exceeded a stress laid on their grace. In short, a psychosis so limpid and imperturbable that Murphy felt drawn to it as Narcissus to his fountain. The tiny body was perfect in every detail, and extremely hairy. The features were most delicate, regular and winning, the complexion olive except where blue with beard. The skull, large for anybody, immense for this, crackled with stiff black hair broken at the crown by one wide tress of bright white. Mr. Endon did not dress, but drifted about the wards in a fine dressing gown of deepest purple. His fingers blazed with rings. He held tight in his little fist, the butt, varying in length according to the hour, of an excellent cigar. This Murphy would light for him in the morning, and keep on lighting throughout the day. Yet evening found it still unfinished. It was the same with chess, Mr. Endon's one frivolity. Murphy would set up the game as soon as he came on in the morning, in a quiet corner of the wreck, make his move, for he always played white, go away, come back to Mr. Endon's reply, make his second move, go away, and so on throughout the day. They came together at the board, but seldom. One or two minutes was as long as Mr. Endon cared to pause in his drifting, longer than Murphy dared snatch from his duties and the vigilance of his superior, Bomb. Each made his move in the absence of the other, inspected the position with what time remained, and went away. So the game wore on, till evening found it almost as level as when begun. This was due not so much to their being evenly matched, or to the unfavorable conditions of play, 
as to the very Fabian methods that both adopted. How little the issue was really engaged may be judged from the fact that sometimes, after eight or nine hours of this, neither player would have lost a piece or even checked the other. This pleased Murphy as an expression of his kinship with Mr. Endon, and made him, if possible, more reluctant to launch an attack than by nature he was. He was very sorry for himself, very sorry, when eight o'clock came, and he had to leave the wards, Mr. Endon, and the lesser friends and exemplars, the warmth and smell of peraldehyde, etc., to face the twelve hours of self, unredeemed split self, now more than ever the best he could do, and less than ever good enough. The end degrades the way into a means, a seamless tedium, yet he had to welcome the inkling of the end. The garret, the fog, sleep, these were the poor best he could do. Ticklepenny had unscrewed the ladder so that now he could draw it up after him. Do not come down the ladder, they have taken it away. He did not see stars any more. Walking back from Skinner House, his eyes were on the ground, and when it was not too cold to open the skylight in the garret, the stars always seemed veiled by cloud or fog or mist. The sad truth was that the skylight commanded only that most dismal patch of night sky, the galactic coal sack, which would naturally look like a dirty night to any observer in Murphy's condition. Cold, tired, angry, impatient and out of conceit with a system that seemed the superfluous cartoon of his own. Murphy lit the radiator, undressed, got into the chair but did not tie himself up. When he came to, or rather from, how he had no idea, the first thing he saw was the fog, the next sweat on his thigh, the next ticklepenny as though thrown on the silent screen by Griffith in mid-shot, soft focus sprawling on the bed, suggesting how he might have been roused. I lit the candle, said Ticklepenny, the better to marvel at you. Murphy did not move. The instinctive curiosities as to how long Ticklepenny had been there, what he wanted at that dead hour, how he had contrived to intrude with the ladder removed, etc., were too indolent to discharge in words. I could not sleep, said Ticklepenny. You're the only pal I have in this kip. I called and called. I threw my handball against the trap again and again, with all my might. I got the wind up. I ran and got my little steps. I suppose if I had put a lock on the trap, said Murphy, my pals would come in through the skylight. You fascinate me, said Ticklepenny fast asleep in the dark with your eyes wide open, like an owl, is it not? I was not asleep, said Murphy. Oh, said Ticklepenny. Then you did hear me. Murphy looked at Ticklepenny. Oh, said Ticklepenny. Do you know what it is? No offense, man. You had a great look of Clark there a minute ago. Clark, a patient, had been there for three weeks in a catatonic stupor. Clark would repeat for hours the phrase, Mr. Endon is very superior. All but the cackle, said Ticklepenny. The gratified look that Murphy disdained to hide so alarmed Ticklepenny that he abandoned his purpose and rose to go, just as Murphy would not have objected to his staying a little longer. He lowered himself over the threshold. He stood on the steps, with only his head appearing, 
he said. You want to watch yourself. In what way? said Murphy. You want to mind your health, said Ticklepenny. In what way do I remind you of Clark? said Murphy. You want to take a pull on yourself, said Ticklepenny. Good night. Murphy's week of day duty had drawn to an end, and the week of night duty came. In the night of Skinner House, walking round and round at the foot of the cross among the shrouded instruments of recreation, having done one round and marking the prescribed pause of ten minutes before the next, he felt the gulf between him and them more strongly than at any time during his week of day duty. He felt it was very likely with them that craved to cross it, as with them that dreaded to. They never did. A round took ten minutes, all being well. If all was not well, if a patient required attention, then the extra time taken by the round was levied on the pause, for it was an inflexible rule of the MMM, laid down in terms so strong as to be almost abusive, that every patient, and not merely those on parchment or on caution, should be visited at regular intervals of not more than twenty minutes throughout the night. If things were so bad that the round took ten minutes longer than it should, then there was no pause, and all was in order. But if things were still worse, and the round took eleven minutes longer than it should, and as less than no pause was unfortunately beyond the powers of even the smartest attendant, then little would be done, even in the Magdalene mental mercy seat. The incidence of this might have been reduced by the introduction at night of an emergency runner, but this would have run the Mersey seat into close on a pound a week, supposing the mug could have been found. A clean round was simplicity itself. The nurse had merely to depress a switch before each door, flooding the cell with the light of such ferocity that the eyes of the sleeping and waking opened and closed respectively, satisfy himself with a glance through the Judas that the patient looked good for another twenty minutes, switch off the light, press the indicator, and pass. The indicator was most ingenious. The indicator recorded the visit, together with the hours, minutes, and seconds at which it was paid, on a switchboard in Baum's apartment. The indicator would have been still more ingenious if it had been activated by the light switch, or even by the Judas shutter for many and many were the visits recorded for Bob's inspection and never paid by nurses who were tired or indolent or sensitive or fed up or malicious or behind time or unwilling to shatter a patient's repose. Bob was what is vulgarly called a sadist and encouraged what is vulgarly called sadism in his assistance. If during the day this energy could not be discharged with any great freedom, even on those patients who submitted to it as part and parcel of the therapeutic voodoo, with still less freedom could it be discharged on those who regarded it as hors d'oeuvre. These latter were reported to the RMS as uncooperative, not cooperating in the routine of the wards, or, in extreme cases, resistive. They were liable to get hell at night. Murphy's first round had shown him what a mere phrase was Neary's sleep and insomnia, the fidious and scopus of fatigue. It might have held good in the dormitory of an academy, where, quite possibly, also it had been inspired. But it had no sense in the wards of the MMM. Here, those that slept and those that did not were quite palpably by the same hand. That of some rather later artist, whose work could by no means have come down to us, say the Pergamene Barlock. 
and in his efforts to distinguish between the two groups, Murphy was reminded of a wild, waning winter afternoon in Toulon, before the Hôtel de Ville, and Puget's caryatids of strength and weariness, and the tattered sky blackening above his perplexity as to which was which. Those that slept did so in the frozen attitudes of Herculaneum, as though sleep had pounced on them like an act of God, and those that did not, did not by the obvious grace of the same authority. The contortions of the resistive in particular seemed to Murphy not so much an entreaty to nature's soft nurse as a recoil from her solicitations. The economy of care was better served in the experience of the resistive when they knit up the sleeve by day. By day he had not felt the gulf so painfully as he did now, walking round and round the wreck. By day there was balm and other staff. There were the doctors and the visitors to stimulate his sense of kindred with the patients. There were the patients themselves, circulating through the wards and in the gardens. He could mix with them, touch them, speak to them, watch them, imagine himself one of them. But in the night of Skinner House there were none of these admittacles. No loathing to love from, no kick from the world that was not his, no illusion of caress from the world that might be. It was as though the microcosmopolitans had locked him out. No sound reached him from the adjacent female wards, but the infinite variety of those made by the female wardees, a faint blurred mockery from which, however, as the night wore on, a number of leading motifs emerged. Ditto for the male wards below. The cackle of a nightingale would have been most welcome to explode his spirit toward its nightingaleless night, but the season seemed over. In short, there was nothing but he, the unintelligible gulf, and they. That was all. 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 It was therefore with a heavy heart that he set out on round two, the first cell to be revisited, that at the southwesternmost corner of the nave, contained Mr. Endon, voted by one and all the most biddable little gaga in the entire institution, his preoccupation with apnea notwithstanding. Murphy switched on the thousand candles, shot back the Judas shutter, and looked in. A strange sight met his eye. Mr. Endon an impeccable and brilliant figurine in his scarlet gown, his crest a gush of vivid white against the black shag, squatted, tailor-fashion, on the head of his bed, holding his left foot in his right hand, and in his left hand his right foot. The purple poulains were on his feet, and the rings were on his fingers. The light spurted off Mr. Endon north, south, east, west, and in fifty-six other directions. The sheet stretched away before him, smooth and taut, and on it a game of chess was set up. The little blue and olive face, wearing an expression of winsome fiat, was upturned to the Judas. Murphy resumed his round, gratified in no small measure. Mr. Endon had recognized the feel of his friend's eye upon him, and made his preparations accordingly. Friend's eye? Say, rather, Murphy's eye. Mr. Endon had felt Murphy's eye upon him. Mr. Endon would have been less than Mr. Endon if he had known what it was to have a friend, and Murphy more than Murphy if he had not hoped against his better judgment that his feeling for Mr. Endon was in some small degree reciprocated. Whereas the sad truth was that 
while Mr. Endon for Murphy was no less than bliss, Murphy for Mr. Endon was no more than chess. Murphy's eye, say, rather, the chessy eye. Mr. Endon had vibrated to the chessy eye upon him and made his preparations accordingly. Murphy's functions were scarcely affected by this break with the tradition of night duty. All it meant was that he took his pauses with Mr. Endon instead of in the wreck. Every ten minutes, he left the cell, pressed the indicator with heartfelt conviction, and did a round. Every ten minutes, and sometimes even sooner, for never in the history of the MMM had there been such a run as on this Murphy's maiden night, he returned to the cell and resumed the game. Sometimes an entire pause would pass without the change having been made in the position, and at other times the board would be in an uproar, a torrent of moves. Following Mr. Endon's forty-third move, Murphy gazed for a long time at the board, before laying his shawl on his side, and again for a long time after that act of submission. But little by little his eyes were captured by the brilliant swallowtail of Mr. Endon's arms and legs, purple, scarlet, black, and glitter, till they saw nothing else, and that, in a short time, only as a vivid blur, a big, blooming, buzzing confusion, or ground, mercifully free of figure. Wearying soon of this, he dropped his head on his arms in the midst of the chessmen, which scattered with a terrible noise. Mr. Endon's finery persisted for a little in an after-image scarcely inferior to the original. Then this also faded, and Murphy began to see nothing. That colorlessness, which is such a rare postnatal treat, being the absence to abuse a nice distinction not of Persipere, but of Persipi. His other senses also found themselves at peace, an unexpected pleasure. Not the numb peace of their own suspension, but the positive peace that comes when the somethings give way, or perhaps simply add up to the nothing than which in the guffaw of the Aberdite naught is more real. Time did not cease, that would be asking too much, but the wheel of rounds and pauses did, as Murphy, with his head among the armies, continued to suck in through all the posterns of his withered soul, the accidentless one and only, conveniently called, nothing. Then this also vanished, or perhaps simply came asunder, in the familiar variety of stenches, asperities, ear-splitters, and eye-closers and Murphy saw that Mr. Endon was missing. For quite some little time, Mr. Endon had been drifting about the corridors, pressing here a light switch and there an indicator, in a way that seemed haphazard, but was, in fact, determined by a pattern as precise as any of those that governed his chess. Murphy found him in the south transept, gracefully stationed before the hypomaniac's pad, ringing the changes on the various ways in which the indicator could be pressed and the light turned on and off. Beginning with the light turned off to begin with, he had lit, indicated, extinguished, lit, extinguished, indicated, indicated, lit, extinguished. Continuing then with the light turned on to begin with, he had extinguished, lit, indicated, extinguished, indicated, lit, indicated, extinguished, and was seriously thinking of lighting when Murphy stayed his hand. The hypomaniac bounced off the walls like a blue bottle in a jar. Bomb's switchboard the following morning informed him that the hypomaniac had been visited at regular intervals of ten minutes from 8 p.m. till shortly after 4 a.m., then for nearly an hour not at all, 
then six times in the space of one minute, then no more. This unprecedented distribution of visits had a lasting effect on Baum, and continued to baffle his ingenuity up to and including the day of his death. He gave it out that Murphy had gone mad, and even went so far as to say that he was not surprised. This went some way towards saving the credit of his department, but none at all towards setting his own mind at rest. And the Magdalene Mental Mersey Seat remembers Murphy to this day with pity, derision, contempt, and a touch of awe as the male nurse that went mad with his colors nailed to the mast. This affords him no consolation. He is in no need of any. Mr. Endon went quietly, back to his cell. It was of no consequence to Mr. Endon that his hand had been stayed from restoring his shaw to his square, and the hypomaniac's light from off to on. It was a fragment of Mr. Endon's good fortune not to be at the mercy of the hand, whether another's or his own. Murphy put the men back into the box, took off Mr. Endon's gown and slippers, and tucked him up in bed. Mr. Endon lay back and fixed his eyes on some object immeasurably remote, perhaps the famous ant on the sky of an airless world. Murphy kneeled beside his bed, which was a low one, took Mr. Endon's head in his hands, and brought the eyes to bear on his, or rather his on them, across a narrow gulf of air, the merest hand's breadth of air. Murphy had often inspected Mr. Endon's eyes, but never with such close and prolonged attention as now. In shape they were remarkable, being both deep-set and protuberant, one of nature's jokes involving sockets so widely splayed that Mr. Endon's brows and cheekbones seemed to have subsided, and in color scarcely less so, having almost none. For the whites, of which a sliver appeared below the upper lid, were very large indeed, and the pupils prodigiously dilated, as though by permanent excess of light. The iris was reduced to a thin, glaucous rim of spawn-like consistency, so like a ball race between the black and white that these could have started to rotate in opposite directions, or better still, the same direction, without causing Murphy the least surprise. All four lids were averted in an ectropian of great expressiveness, a mixture of cunning, depravity, and rapt attention. Approaching his eyes still nearer, Murphy could see the red frills of mucus, a large point of separation at the root of an upper lash, the filigree of veins like the Lord's prayer on a toenail, and in the cornea, horribly reduced, obscured, and distorted, his own image. They were all set, Murphy and Mr. Endon, for a butterfly kiss, if that is still the correct expression. Kneeling at the bedside, the hair starting in thick black ridges between his fingers, his lips, nose and forehead almost touching Mr. Endon's, Seeing himself stigmatized in those eyes that did not see him, Murphy heard words demanding so strongly to be spoken that he spoke them, right into Mr. Endon's face, Murphy who did not speak at all in the ordinary way unless spoken to, and not always even then. The last, at last seen of him, himself unseen by him, and of himself. Arrest. The last Mr. Murphy saw of Mr. Endon was Mr. Murphy unseen by Mr. Endon. This was also the last Murphy saw of Murphy. Arrest. 
the relation between Mr. Murphy and Mr. Endin could not have been better summed up than by the former's sorrow at seeing himself in the latter's immunity from seeing anything but himself. A long rest. Mr. Murphy is a speck in Mr. Endin's unseen. That was the whole extent of the little of flatulence. He replaced Mr. Endon's head firmly on the pillow, rose from his knees, left the cell and the building, without reluctance and without relief. In contrast with the foredawn, which was pitch black, cold, and damp, Murphy felt incandescent. An hour previously the moon had been obliged to set, and the sun could not rise for an hour to come. He raised his face to the starless sky, abandoned, patient, the sky, not the face, which was abandoned only. He took off his shoes and socks and threw them away. He set off slowly, trailing his feet through the long grass among the trees toward the male nurse's quarters. He took off his clothes one by one as he went, quite forgetting they did not belong to him, and threw them away. When he was naked, he lay down in a tuft of soaking tuffets and tried to get a picture of his beloved Celia in vain of his mother in vain, of his father, for he was not illegitimate, in vain. It was usual for him to fail with his mother, and usual, though less usual, for him to fail with a woman, but never before had he failed with his father. He saw the clenched fists and rigid, upturned face of the child in a Giovanni Bellini circumcision, waiting to feel the knife. He saw eyeballs being scraped, First any eyeballs, then Mr. Endens. He tried again with his father, his mother, the sheep, even Baum and company, even Bim, even Ticklepenny. He tried with the men, women, children, and animals that belonged to even worse stories than this. In vain, in all cases. He could not get a picture in his mind of any creature he had met, animal or human. Scraps of bodies, of landscapes, hands, eyes, lines, and colors evoking nothing, rose and climbed out of sight before him, as though reeled upward off a spool level with his throat. It was his experience that this should be stopped, whenever possible, before the deeper coils were reached. He rose and hastened to the garret, running till he was out of breath, then walking, then running again, and so on. He drew up the ladder lit the dip, sconced in its own grease on the floor, and tied himself up in the chair, dimly intending to have a short rock, and then, if he felt any better, to dress and go, before the day staff were about, leaving Ticklepenny to face the music. Music! Music! Dimly, very dimly, he pushed off. At one of the rock's dead points he saw for a second far beneath the dip and radiator gleam and grin, at the other the skylight open to no stars. Slowly he felt better, a stir in his mind. In the freedom of that light and dark that did not clash, nor alternate, nor fade, nor lighten except to their communion, the rock got faster and faster, shorter and shorter, the gleam was gone. The grin was gone, the starlessness was gone, and soon his body would be quiet. Most things under the moon got slower and slower, and then stopped. 
the rock got faster and faster and then stopped. Soon his body would be quiet. Soon he would be free. The gas went on in the WC. Excellent gas. Super fine chaos. Soon his body was quiet. Thank you for listening to the Death Panel Halloween Special. <laughs> to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Until next time, stay alive. Another week. Oh yeah! <laughs>